Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series in the book of Revelation called The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 2. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, with a message entitled, God Preserves His People. the world, people love to preserve things. I mean, visit a museum, visit one of the great archaeological sites of the world, go to any large city, and you're going to find heritage buildings that people are concerned should be restored and protected. Indeed, there are cities in the world that are designated as world heritage sites. History departments and universities are dedicated to keeping alive the memory of cultures and their accomplishments. You know, it seems to me the reason why human beings work so hard at preserving things is because we all recognize how fragile things actually are. It seems to take so little and something can be lost to us and from our memories forever. You know that God is determined to preserve his people. One of the most beautiful truths that we can cherish is that God keeps his promises and a part of those promises include the preservation of the church. You know, we can see that in how God has preserved his people in the past. When the waves of persecution that rolled through the ancient Roman Empire, God preserved his people. God preserved his people in the Middle Ages as the official church became increasingly corrupt and bereft of the truth. You know, in the Middle Ages, the gospel had all but disappeared, and yet God raised up Peter Waldo and the Waldensians in France who translated the Bible and replaced the sacraments with a preached word of God and planted Bible-believing churches in numerous countries. In England, God raised up John Wycliffe, known as the Morning Star of the Reformation, who translated the New Testament into English. In Bohemia, John Huss defended and promoted the gospel of Jesus Christ. Huss was burned at the stake by the corrupt church in his day. But a hundred years after Huss, a German priest named Martin Luther read his writings and he, along with others, inspired a full reformation of the church and the translation of the Bible into every language. God preserves his church and it will not die. You know, in the present hours, the church is globally expanding. God is preserving his churches in countries where persecution is brutal. But for instance, in Syria, with a brutal killing of Christians, from my hearing of it, not one Christian has broken ranks and deserted the gospel. Their witness must not be forgotten. In an age to come when satanic persecution reaches its full measure, God will then also preserve his people. The future is not uncertain. It is the future preservation of the people of God that we now turn to in our study of the book of Revelation. We come to one of the most important and yet controversial chapters in this book. In preparation for our study of Revelation chapter 11, I've done an entire teaching on the background of this passage found in the Old Testament book of Daniel that forms the basis for this chapter. Daniel taught us several things. First, he taught us that God has a definite timeline regarding his ordering of last things. Daniel, with an uncanny precision, indicated the rise and fall of world empires and even seems to have predicted the exact year of Christ's death, or in his words, when Messiah would be cut off. We also learned that at the end of the age, God has reserved a seven-year period of time, a time period that is divided in half. During the first three and a half years, God protects and preserves his people, but during the last half, things will turn remarkably ugly. 
Daniel talks about an abomination that causes desolation, and we might speak of a merciless decimation of the people of God, an abomination. We also saw that in history, there have been two such abominations. The first came in 176 BC when the Syrian king Antiochus entered into the Jewish temple and sacrificed a pig and erected an altar to Zeus and then desecrated the Jewish people until the Maccabean revolt drove him out. The second came in AD 70 when the Romans under Titus burned the Jewish temple to the ground and utterly scattered the Jews, leaving them without a homeland for almost 2,000 years. Revelation 11 borrows on that theme and presents us with another, the greatest abomination of desolations the world will ever see. But as we read, we must always remember that God preserves his people. That's the promise, and that promise is fixed. God will preserve his people. At this point in time, I must confess that Revelation 11 has become, among Christians, one of the most divisive chapters in the book. This is a chapter which good and sincere Bible students will disagree about. There's no getting out of that issue. All of us will have to decide how we understand this text. And how we understand this text will govern how we read the rest of the book. But let me not get ahead of myself. I think it's time to start reading it. I'm reading Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. John, the author, is speaking. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it has been given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Now notice the number. 1,260 days, a number that is taken directly from the book of Daniel. Whether it's the phrase times time and a half a time or three and a half years, that number is from Daniel. Please also notice that whether it's 42 months or 1,260 days, we're talking about the same period of time. It's always three and a half years. And so if I understand Revelation 11, the drama is as follows. For three and a half years, the first half of Daniel's week, two witnesses are given extraordinary power to proclaim the gospel and who are protected by God as they do so. For the next three and a half years, the temple is trampled underfoot and it would appear the people of God are decimated. That's the drama. But the details are the details. That's where many disagree. So so what's the problem? It's actually quite simple. When John wrote Revelation, there had been no temple in Jerusalem for about 25 years. You're going to remember that the Romans had burned the temple to the ground. There was nothing there. There was only a charred ruin. Some Bible teachers believe that in order to fulfill Revelation 11, at some future date, the Jewish temple is going to need to be rebuilt. Furthermore, since this chapter is about the temple, they assume it must also be about the Jewish people. And so in this perspective, Revelation 11 must be about the Jewish people turning to Christ, rebuilding the temple, proclaiming the gospel from Jerusalem, and then the revenge of Antichrist as the nations trample over the temple in Jerusalem for three and a half years. Now, still others, even while they think the language of the temple is symbolic language, still think that Revelation 11 is about a restored Jewish community worshiping Jesus and proclaiming Jesus to the world. And so, even while they don't need a literal temple rebuilt, the same formula of a restored Israel taking the lead in proclaiming the gospel. 
But there are others who think that the language of Revelation 11 is symbolic. See, they argue that the language of Israel is applied to the church and give numerous New Testament examples of just that. For instance, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? Or 2 Corinthians 6.16, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Or consider the lengthy passage in Ephesians 2.19-21. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So the last group says, since the language of the temple refers to the church and that language was so common, everyone reading Revelation, that is the first readers, would immediately assume that this was a reference to the church. And so that's where we divide. Now, before I tell you where I stand on the issue, could we agree on something in advance? Our understanding of Revelation 11 is not an issue of Christian orthodoxy. I hope you heard that. This is not about the Trinity. This is not about the deity of Christ or whether Christ will return. And so I urge a gracious spirit as we talk about this. Furthermore, we should also understand that while we might disagree with others about the meaning of the details, we might find the application of the passage remains the same we're still going to understand that the point of the chapter is to assure believers that God always protects and he always preserves his people even in the midst of great persecution. See, one of the tricks to understanding the book of Revelation is that we must never, never take our eyes off of the big picture. God knows those who are his own. And in the end of the day, his people will stand with their Messiah. As long as we remember that important truth, we should find no reason to divide on this passage. Back to the Bible Canada's 2018 Celebration Caribbean Cruise is scheduled for this coming February. Join the ministry team for a nine-day journey to some of the Caribbean's most spectacular and exotic islands and locations. Enjoy a great vacation, all that the cruise ship has to offer, and enjoy the inspirational Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, encouragement and laughter with Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and worship with and take in a special exclusive musical concert with the Weebs. This is a vacation event for the entire family that you're not going to want to miss. So make plans today by calling 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit backtothebible.ca for all the cruise details. Now space is limited and registration is going well, so don't be disappointed and book now. And remember, the entire cost of all ministry vacation events are paid by those who participate. So, how do I understand Revelation 11? Now, I think it refers to the church, but I also will show that there are important parts of this chapter that do deal with Israel. So, let me explain. I think that the final abomination that causes desolation is a desolation against the church of Jesus Christ. 
I think that two past examples are but a foretaste of the final expression of satanic outrage against the entire people of God. Having said that, I do believe that God does have a special place for Israel. See, I can't read Romans 9 to 11 without remembering that one day in the future, God will take the broken branches that are Israel and graft them back into the vine. See, I believe, and I know, I know, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I believe that during the millennium, God will gather Abraham's physical descendants and they will grieve over their sin and turn to their Savior. So all of that to say that I do believe that God has a special place for Israel in the future. Now, I'll talk about that further as we go on. But for now, let's see what we can say about these first two verses in Revelation 11. So follow me through this text and see if you think that I'm right in my interpretation of this text. So let's start with verse 1 again. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Now, in the Bible, prophets are sometimes called upon to symbolize their message, kind of like a drama gets everyone's notice. For instance, Isaiah in Isaiah 20 walks around naked and barefoot for years to symbolize how the Assyrians will lead the Egyptians and the Cushites into captivity as exiles. Or, in Ezekiel 4, Ezekiel is supposed to build a representation of Jerusalem. It's replete with siege walls and ramps, and then lie in front of it, first on his left side and then on his right, and act out the punishment and the exile of Israel. Some of you might remember that in the New Testament, a prophet named Agabus binds his hands and his feet with a belt to symbolize the imprisonment of the Apostle Paul. I guess what I'm saying is that dramatic representations of events are a common practice among the prophets and the apostles. And since in Revelation, a great many of the events are visions, you know, putting together a drama and a vision should not surprise us. And so even though there's no temple in Jerusalem, God is giving a vision to John and he's given him a measuring rod to measure out the temple. But why? What does that symbolize? Now, what I'm about to say is key to understanding this passage. Measuring the temple is a dramatic way of symbolizing God protecting and preserving the temple. We find that when Ezekiel measures his temple in the end of the book of Ezekiel, this is a symbol of God protecting and defending. So, if that's right, that measuring the temple symbolizes God's work in preserving the temple, we might ask, how is God doing that? Well, look at the wording. John is told to measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there, but is forbidden from measuring the court outside of the temple. So let's see if we can get a picture of what that looks like. The temple at the time of Jesus was divided into three courts. Imagine, if you will, the temple being the enclosed building. It's the center. It's this center that houses the Holy of Holies. Then there are three open-air courts that surround that building. The first was the court of the priests, then the second was the court of men, and then the court of women came third. In each case, these courts surround the Holy of Holies, and they are placed where God has come to bless his people. But outside of those courts is another court. It's the court of the Gentiles. We know from the account of the temple that there was a barrier erected keeping Gentiles from the temple courts. And so if you were a Gentile but did not want to convert to Judaism, you would go to the outside edge of the temple, but you could not go into the actual compound itself. It was not for you. Now, according to Revelation 11, verse 2, the outer court of the Gentile was not measured. So the symbolism suggests that the court of the Gentiles is not preserved by God. He's not protecting that. 
Indeed, we are told that it's trampled by the nations. And since, so at least it seems to me that this is the language of symbolism, it seems obvious that the temple in Revelation refers to the church of Jesus Christ. But what then does the court outside the temple refer to? If God preserves and protects his church, who are those people outside the gate of the church who receive no protection? Now, perhaps the book of Revelation already provides the clue. Do you remember Jesus' words to the church in Pergamum? He commended them because the majority of them held fast to his name, even as one of their own numbers was killed for the faith. They were going to hold fast unto death. But then Jesus said, and I'm reading Revelation 2, 14 to 15, he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Hope you heard that. While most were faithful, some were not, and were actively promoting idolatry, sexual immorality, and allowing for false doctrinal teaching. There were people who associated with the church, but they were not of the people of God. And that's not the only example. I mean, it's a very similar warning is given to the church in Thyatira. Revelation 2.20 says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Again, a different church, but very similar problems. But that was the battle of the early church. Those of you who know the writings of Paul know that he was engaged in a constant fight with a group whom he called the Judaizers. The book of Galatians utterly condemns them. They were pretending to be believers and yet leading many astray. They surrounded the people of God, but they did not belong. They're in the outer court, but not among the true worshipers. And for that matter, in Matthew 13, Matthew records Jesus teaching the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And he says that the weeds would look like the genuine wheat, but they were planted by Satan to disturb the harvest. Again, the idea is that false teachers would surround the church. And so as I read Revelation 11, I see a description of the church, the fulfillment of all that was in the Old Testament temple. In keeping with what was said before, when the scroll is open and the day of the Lord begins, God begins to pour out supernatural plagues on the earth. But during this time, as many on earth are struck by the plagues of God, God has put a seal on the forehead of his elect and he supernaturally protects his own people. That image is exactly in line with the image in Revelation 11. God has sent John to measure the temple as a symbolic act that he preserves them. God is preserving his true temple now. But now, two things are added. First, John is not to measure those who surround the temple but are not really a part of it. They are not preserved. See, I think that means that in the final days, God will make a distinction between those who belong to his true church and those who do not. And in the context of Revelation, those who are counterfeits belong to three categories. First, there are those who promote idolatry. They will not be sealed by God. Only God deserves our worship. False gods and worship of that which is not God is utterly condemned. Secondly, God will not protect those who promote sexual immorality. See, in the Bible, all sexual activity is confined to marriage, the marriage of one man to one woman to the exclusion of all others. And finally, those who are excluded are those who teach false doctrines. Now, 
Revelation 11 adds a second thought, added to what we have seen. These pseudo-believers will be given over to the nations for three and a half years. And so a thought is forming. For the first three and a half years of the tribulation, when we see the outpouring of God's wrath, God supernaturally protects his people, but he makes a distinction between his people and the counterfeits. That seems to say that pagan hostility will be directed at the compromised believers while the true believers will be protected. That's an interesting twist. Those who make compromises with the world are in the end greeted with the open hostility of a world who hates their hypocrisy. And in our day, that's clearly the case. You know, liberal Christians are not respected by the world. They are greeted with either disdain or a complete lack of interest. It would be better either to embrace Christ fully or to refuse him utterly. This halfway approach to Christ is hated by both Christ and by the world. But all who, as we later learn, all who refuse the mark of the beast are protected, at least initially, for the first three and a half years. The witnessing church of Jesus, which is described in this passage, will be protected for a time until the sovereign plan of God, that that protection of God, is removed. And so, would you hear the call? Bow the knee and submit fully to Christ. Don't compromise with the world, for if you do, you have no future, not in this world, nor in the next. John, this month is so important to the ministry financially. It's our fiscal year end, and we have a significant goal of $338,000. I know the goal is reachable, but not without folks who share the same heart and passion for the mission of Back to the Bible Canada. Now, it wasn't that long ago, a number of the ministry team gathered together around a table and began to talk about how we would express this ministry in its purest, most direct form. And what we came up with is simply this. We teach the Bible. Now, here's my question. Is that too simple? I think it's profound. I I love that. We teach the Bible. In the end, I think what we're saying as an entire ministry, we think that God has given us a message in Scripture. And the more we get to know that text, the more we understand it thoroughly and continue to walk with that thing and communicate it well. If we do that one thing, we're communicating the most important thing that this country and this world needs to hear. You know, I was with a friend of ours, Brian, and he was telling me the other day, one of the things he appreciated so much about your teaching is this, and I'm just going to quote him. He says, I love how John gets out of the way and allows the Bible to speak for itself. That's critically important to you, isn't it? Yeah, that's a real compliment. I really took that to heart. And I do want to, you know, pray to the Lord. Lord, may I always get out of the way so that your word would be front and center. So why do you think that's so important for people to understand that that's the sort of the approach we take? Yeah, we do verse-by-verse Bible teaching. We try to understand a book within its context. We want to understand what it meant to its original hearers. Once we understand that, we'll apply it to our day. So we're taking the plain meaning of the text. That's the only way we're supposed to understand the text. So, you know, from my vantage point, Ben, if we don't explain the text as it was written, verse-by-verse, carefully, you know, we won't be communicating the word. Thanks so much, John. And please help us with our fiscal year-end goal in the month of June. You can call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, we teach the Bible. 